Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, June 16, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, the Iowa Supreme Court rules on the fetal heartbeat bill. National Democrats reject Iowa Democrats' caucus plan. More fallout from Iowa Senate Democrats' leadership shakeup. And our gang talks to some of the long-shot presidential candidates in Iowa. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. With me this week are Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Hello, Tom. Hello, Aaron. We have Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough with us. Hello, Caleb. Happy Friday, Aaron. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal is here. Greetings, Jared. He never sleeps, the judge. He is dancing, dancing. He says that he will never die. <laughs> oh, that's another one I don't, I'm not familiar with. Uh, rest in peace to Cormac McCarthy, Aaron. Oh, yes. I did. I actually did know that. Now you say that. No. Um, and lastly, with us is uh, Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Hello, Todd. Hello. All right. Uh, first up this week, uh, we actually have a couple of breaking news items hot off the presses. Uh, as we sit here and record this podcast on early Friday afternoon, uh, a couple of big stories uh, have been breaking uh, this morning. Uh, we start with the Iowa Supreme Court, which this morning delivered its opinion on Governor Kim Reynolds' request to reinstate the 2018 so-called fetal heartbeat bill. So to do this as succinctly as possible, um, the 2018 fetal heartbeat bill was blocked by the courts. Um, and then after the Roe versus Wade at the U.S. Supreme Court and the Iowa Supreme Court rulings last year sort of reset the legal, legal landscape for abortion regulations, Governor Reynolds asked the Iowa courts to reinstate that 2018 fetal heartbeat bill, a couple little steps in the process along the way. And here we were uh, this morning, the Iowa Supreme Court renders its decision, uh, which is an interesting one in that it's sort of a non-decision, but very much has the impact of a decision. Um, the court split three to three. One of the seven justices recused herself. And so what that split decision effectively does is keeps the lower court ruling in place. The lower court ruling had maintained its previous ruling that the law was unconstitutional. So that is now the final word, legislative, legally speaking, on the 2018 fetal heartbeat bill. Now the question is what happens next? So uh, uh, Todd, uh, wide open, this is, like I said, uh, fresh news. What What's your kind of initial reaction to the Supreme Court's ruling? I thought the uh, the governor's case was always sort of convoluted. I mean, you had this injunction issued by a lower court. It was a permanent injunction, which permanent usually means, you know, permanent. And, uh, and then, you know, the la legal landscape changed, but you know, she went to the she went to the Iowa Supreme Court asking for a lot. She wanted them to toss the injunction and revive the dead bill. Uh, and you know that that's not something that the court either has done or has done. You know, has done rarely. And then third, she wanted them to set a new standard for judicial review when it comes to abortion laws. She wanted them to go from the current standard that you know they can't impose an undue burden on women who want to seek an abortion to a to one where it's like if the legislature has a rational basis they can pass you know pretty much whatever they want because rational basis is a really weak standard so she was asking them to do a lot and three of the justices as you mentioned decided that it was too far a leap you know for one thing on a court that was missing one of its members due to a conflict so I think there was some reluctance on the part of the three judges that didn't want to throw out the injunction that they wanted, you know, if this if something this monumental is going to come up, 
it should be taken up by the entire the entire Supreme Court. Uh, and effectively, what this does is, well, first, the strategy was designed really to keep to to let you know to to allow there to be a, an abortion ban in Iowa at six weeks without the current General Assembly ever having to take a vote on it. And that would have been politically, they would have got what they wanted politically, but they wouldn't have had to necessarily get as much flack politically as they would if they actually, you know, filed past and and signed a bill into law. That's what they're going to have to do now. This throws it back to the legislature. The three justices are basically saying, look, if you want to, if you want a six week abortion ban, you need to draft a bill and send it through the process. And then when that when that court challenge inevitably comes, we'll take a look at this as a fresh law and make our, our ruling none. So that leaves Republicans in a situation now where, you know, unless they decide to do a special session, which their comments today didn't seem to indicate that they were, you know, they didn't mention that, I guess. Uh, that leaves them to go into an election year session to pass a law that would be pretty unpopular among Iowans. And if, if it's still the six-week ban, you know, maybe they think about 12 or something else. But banning abortion is unpopular. It puts them in a sort of sort of tough political position. I think they will pass something. But, you know, with today's ruling, it's also not a slam dunk that the Iowa Supreme Court's going to, you know, uphold it. Yeah, that to me is one of the biggest unanswered questions moving forward is everything you said is accurate. And ultimately, we assume they will do something again legislatively because clearly they're not satisfied at, at 20 weeks, which is currently the law. And by the way, just quick side note, I should make that clear for anybody who's not following this super closely. That's the, um, you know, the, the actual impact of this is status quo. The current law stays in place. So moving forward, unless something changes down the road for now, abortion in Iowa means le- remains legal until the 20th week of pregnancy. Um, so to get back to the point, clearly that's not enough for this current uh, Republican legislature and governor. Uh, we assume they're going to do something at some point. Um, but will that pass legal muster? And that, well, you know, and how do they do that? And that is something they have to wrestle with, it, whatever they choose to craft. Well, the court mentioned this, and I thought it was kind of interesting that the, the House Republicans filed a, a friend of the court brief in this case, and there were 15. House Republicans that did not sign on to that friend of the court brief. Why? I don't know. Maybe they weren't around to sign up. <laughs> I, I don't know for sure. But but I mean, the court cited that as saying, you know, there may not be the solid consensus for an abortion ban in the legislature that, you know, the, the state wanted to argue exists. Yeah. And I mean, that will be the interesting thing to monitor whenever this comes up, whether it is a special session or next year is the vast, vast majority, 99% of state house Republican lawmakers are going to want to do something lower than 20 weeks, but where that actually lands and what that actually looks like, there will be decided uh, different views within the caucus. Some will might be comfortable around 15 or 12 weeks. Some will want to go for the six week thing again. Some will want an all out ban. Uh, so that's the challenge. And, and to your original point, Todd, that's why they wanted to get the why leaders wanted to get this one through because the work was already done and they and they could be done with it. Well, and they're going to have to argue about what exemptions do you put in, in a bill? Mm-hmm. Uh, is this going to result in criminal penalties or administrative penalties for the doctor? Or, you know, there's all these moving parts within a bill like this that 
Republicans are all going to feel a little bit differently about how strong it should be or or what except exemption should be in it. So that's I mean, it's 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 no slam. It's no slam dunk. The, the other interesting thing that I'll be to watch this is now is we, we all have that constitutional amendment floating out there um, that they already passed in one General Assembly. Um, and, and what Republicans have proposed is an amendment to the Constitution that would the state constitution that would say the Iowa Constitution does not guarantee a right to an abortion. Um, they already passed that once. They have to pass it again before putting it to voters. They tabled that this year because they wanted to see this ruling first. They wanted to see, because if this bill went on the books, they felt that that was good enough. They didn't have to worry about the constitutional amendment. Now that this didn't go through, now that the Supreme Court rejected the 2018 Fiddle Heartbeat Bill, I wonder, do they go back to the constitutional amendment first, pass that, to, to and then maybe come back to a new bill after that that says, hey, now we've put this in the Iowa Constitution, maybe that gives them a little more legal room well, to pass uh, something after that. But I, I don't know, that's just... Well, the problem with that is that if they do that, I guess it will go on the ballot next November, correct? Exactly, that's the other... So if it's overwhelmingly defeated, then how do you come back and say, yep. well, I think we're going to pass an abortion ban now after after this amendment was, was soundly... Yep beaten that so would be the risk. and you're also exactly. and you're also you know putting the abortion issue on the ballot which allows democrats you know to focus on it and and motivates their voters too so yeah it's a it's kind of a rock and a hard place yeah um it's gonna be interesting um uh fascinating to see how, how this unfolds uh um moving forward i'm sure um um you know, those discussions are already uh, taking place behind closed doors and uh, that debate will be eventually pushed out into the public. Uh, like I said, will it be a special session this year or will they wait until next January to start again? Uh, remains to be seen. Tom or Caleb, real quick, you, you, you guys uh, will be responsible for uh, helping to cover this whenever it comes back up. Do you have a gut um, sense of whether we'll see a special session or whether they'll, uh, I'll give you the chance to Go on the record with a crystal ball here. You think we'll see a special session or you think this is going to be a, a January of 24 discussion? I don't know if I can make a prediction. I do think that um, looking at kind of the electoral consequences, I wonder if Republicans would prefer to uh, do this during a special session this year rather than um, next year just to have some time in between the this, the law, if they do pass a law and the general or in, in the next election. Um, so that would, you know, move maybe some people toward calling a special session um and also of course they can uh they can kind of use that for the argue for the pro-life people that they're you know taking quick action and and you know that's that's something that they support so yeah i mean i wouldn't be surprised but i i, I don't know enough uh, i don't have enough uh to to make that crystal ball prediction yeah i i don't know um i i hesitate to to make a a prediction but um I guess my my gut reaction is, you know, given how quickly they wanted to be out of there this year. Um, I mean, I I don't know if this is really going to drag them back. I, I mean, they they've made pretty clear at the start of the session that um, you know they really weren't interested in um, tackling or um, 
you know, putting forward any uh, further abortion restrictions, you know, they were pretty clear set that they wanted to wait and see what uh, the ruling was that came down uh, from the Iowa Supreme Court and just kind of going off of comments earlier in the session, you know, it, it seemed like they were okay to, you know, kick this can to, to, to the next legislative session. Um, but who knows? We'll see. It, it depends on, um, you know, kind of how fired up the Republican base gets about this. And, um, you know, also how much this plays into um, the presidential race, you know, how much the presidential candidates end up talking about this. Um, I think Mike Pence has already kind of jumped on this and is on social media talking about, uh, you know, his disappointment in the ruling. So I don't know, I guess it, it, it remains to be seen right now. I, I don't know that there's um, much of a push or, or strong will to, to call a legislative session, but that could easily change. Another thing to think about with the, um, you know, talking about the electoral um, aspects of this is, you know, we've seen in the last year that uh, abortion restrictions are generally pretty unpopular. There's polling in Iowa that says that um, in places like Kansas, an, an abortion amendment lost on a um, general election ballot. So, you know, when you're looking at if they come back in 2024 and pass a six week or, you know, even stricter abortion restriction, what what's going to be, um, you know, what's that going to mean for 2024? And even if it doesn't mean the whole, you know, a whole chamber flips because the Democrats would have to win a lot of seats to make that happen. They If Republicans lose four or five seats in their majority, that that was kind of the deciding, those were the deciding votes in some of these kind of biggest content, most contentious bills that passed last year, this year. So that, that could have some interesting consequences, I suppose. Yeah, that's a great point uh, about when this goes to the ballot in recent years, we've seen it in other states, and you mentioned Kansas. Uh, Wisconsin's another example where they had the Supreme Court race um, uh, recently, and and uh, that was a major issue in that race. And and uh, the more liberal justice won um, by a fairly big margin, given how purple that state's been uh, in elections in recent years. Um, and, and so I, I think I, I'm with you guys. It, uh, uh, I, I don't. It, it really is just kind of a gut or best guess because I, I can see arguments for both sides of a special section or wait session or waiting till next year. Uh, so I honestly have no way of knowing, you know, the, obviously the big three ultimately have to make that decision. Kim Reynolds, Pat Grassley, and Jack Whitford. Uh, I have no insight into which way they're leading or thinking. Um, uh, and like I said, if you, if you kind of talk through it, you can make arguments for either way. Um, so so that, that'll be interesting. Um, obviously, one, uh, sorry, go oh, ahead. I was going to say just uh, one quick uh, thing to note is that, you know, one of the judges who let the district ruling stand uh, is a Reynolds appointee. So that's uh, a fun that, part of all of this as well. Yeah, that was the last point I was actually going to make, Jared. And then I was going to go the other way. It, it, the, the, two, the other two uh, that ruled to let the district court ruling stand uh, were the last two non-Reynolds appointees on the court. Now, they're still Republican appointees. They were both appointed by Terry Branstead. Uh, but the only two members of the court who were not appointed by Reynolds, um, voted to let the lower court ruling stand, which is interesting. And, and Jared's actually absolutely right. It's also interesting that one Reynolds appointee did go the other way. Um, and she just also happens to be the chief justice, uh, Susan Christensen. Um, so man, fascinating stuff, a million different ways, but Sunday, uh, obviously this is a huge thing, huge impacts, uh, both politically and in real life. <laughs> um, so something we'll be unpacking for the days and weeks to come 
Um, we've got press conferences scheduled for yet this afternoon. Um, uh, so we'll have more to talk on future podcasts, uh, but we need to uh, roll on here now because we've got more uh, want to talk about um, um, uh, the other story fresh in, in the in the news cycle today is National Democrats' rejection of Iowa Democrats' proposed plans for the 2024 Iowa caucuses. Uh, the National Rules and the National Party's Rules and Bylaws Committee met today in Minneapolis, and that committee rejected Iowa Democrats' plan uh, temporarily, anyways. Uh, and that plan calls for mail-in preference cards for the presidential precinct caucuses, um, and says that that's that those caucuses will be held before any other state's presidential nominating event, but does not make clear, and this is the hangup, uh, does not make clear when those presidential preference results will be made public. Uh, Tom, this isn't a terribly big surprise. I think the safe money was always on the National Democrats rejecting this plan. Uh, so what's next? Where, where do we go from here? What's next for the Iowa Democrats and their caucuses? Yeah, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Apologize. Um, so essentially, uh, the Iowa Democratic Party now has um, 30 days, um, though uh, the um, DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee um, could agree to grant them uh, more time or extension. But um, essentially, um, they've got uh, 30 days um, to come back to uh, the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee um, with, with changes to comply with um, national party rules. Um, but uh, Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart has indicated that, um, you know, Democrats plan to forge ahead um, with their plan. Um, so, I mean, there's a scenario where, you know, they could join states like New Hampshire and potentially decide to um, go rogue. And then, um, you know, it's up to, to the DNC um, you know, what the punishments are or fallout is from that. Uh, you know, they previously passed rules um, saying that um, states that, um, that, that skip the line, that, that buck the system um, uh, could be uh, stripped of their national delegates. Um, so, um, excuse me, Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart said that uh, as you mentioned, she was, Aaron, you know, not surprised by the decision from the Rules and Bylaws Committee, recognized that there are missing pieces in their draft delegate selection plan, but that was intentional and designed to be flexible so that they could respond to kind of the, well, what she called the continued chaos um, surrounding the presidential nominating uh, calendar, which um, on the Democratic side is still uncertain and up in the air. Um, and then she she went on to say that no matter what, um, Iowa Democrats are united in moving forward with um, the most inclusive caucus process and that uh, they'll do what's good for Iowa, what's good for Democrats, and uh, what's good for democracy. So still a lot of question marks and kind of open-ended questions about where they go from here. But yeah, that's um, what's amazing about this, isn't it? Is it seems like every time we have news happen on, on this story essentially all it is is another kick of the can down the road because so we got another 30 days and like you said possibly more if they ask for um um a, an extension uh before we actually finally know what's what's going to happen with these things yeah yeah all right um well and, and we'll when 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 something actually happens we'll, we'll cover that down the road too uh Speeding right along here, so much to talk about this week, my goodness. Um, moving uh, from the caucuses in themselves to the caucus campaign trail in a field of potential presidential candidates that has become 
this expansive is the one we're dealing with here in Iowa. There are obviously some candidates who are going to be the longest of long shots, and our team covered some of those candidates this past week. Uh, so let's talk about a few of those. Uh, Jared, we'll start with you. You interviewed Ryan Binkley, who um, he's not even listed when a lot of reporters list all of the stated Republican presidential candidates. His name doesn't even show up. Um, on the other hand, to his credit, I have seen a Ryan Binkley campaign ad on my TV in the Des Moines area. So so he's been up on TV. Uh, so help us, Jared, you tell us, who is Ryan Binkley and what's the message he's trying to get out to Iowa Republicans? I will uh, be your Binkley guide. Um, he <laughs> was in Sioux City this past Friday um, and he made a stop at the, uh, the Wheelhouse Bar and Grill where uh, Governor Reynolds has previously held an event. And uh, Asa Hutchinson's actually holding one there on uh, Monday. Uh, and then after that event last Friday, uh, Binkley came by the journal offices to talk to me for like a half hour. Um, he's a Texas pastor and the CEO of a consultancy company that has about 300 employees. And if you were doing like a word cloud of um, like what his message is, he talked a lot about restoring unity. Um, that notion came up repeatedly when I talked to him. And, you know, when I asked him what that meant, he said that he thinks um, a president could restore unity by focusing on issues like the national debt or the border, um, where he thinks that citizens can still put country over party. Now, obviously, at least with the border, that's an issue that's pretty contentious. So I'm dubious about that being something that can transcend uh, partisan politics. Um, he also talked about how divisive uh, others in the 2024 field have been. Uh, and even said that Trump uh, has not led with the message of unity. Um, as you mentioned, he, he's already run TV ads in Iowa, and he's got a fairly healthy slate of events. Uh, one day next week, he has uh, three meet and greets scheduled in three different counties, uh, including one at a pizza ranch in uh, in Boone. So I think that alone, if nothing else, makes him official, right? 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um and he's also taking part in, you know, parades and the Iowa March for Life. And so I I don't know if all of that adds up to like a massive upswing in the polls or it, it even leads to him being pulled for at all. Um, but those are the kind of things that you can at least build on when there's still plenty of time before the caucuses. Yeah, there you go. Um, so we'll watch and see and if he's able uh, uh, to do that and 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 um, uh get more visibility in front of especially Iowa Republicans um uh but but uh you know the other thing and, and all, a lot of these candidates are dealing with it is, is um it's not just the retail side of it but it there also seems to be an added pressure on them to do media especially cable media cuz cuz it gets them out in front of more people um and gets them in, in front of more donors and and the donor threshold being what's driving debate participation um, and, and that's uh, one that uh, I think uh, candidates like uh, Ryan Binky has, has been kind of behind some of the other ones um, on. Uh, I'm sure his team's been uh, trying to hit up Tucker Carlson as, as much as uh, possible. Um, Caleb, you covered uh, another one of these uh, long shots and, and one of the newest candidates in the race and the latest governor to join the race. Uh, North Dakota's Doug Burgum. What was his pitch in Iowa this past week? Yeah, so just for some background, uh, Doug Burgum is the in his second term as governor of, of North Dakota. He is a tech billionaire who 
invested in a uh, software startup in North Dakota back in the 80s. And uh, so that's kind of how, he, how he's made his fortune. Um, and he really brought his campaign laser focused on three things. That's energy, the economy, and national security. Um, and he kind of argued that these things are all interconnected and that they are the things that matter to the most number of Americans. Um, very focused on policy and kind of policy specifics. He talked about, uh, he kind of argued that um, the Biden administration's focus on electric cars and, and batteries is not uh, a winning strategy for energy. He thinks that we should be drilling more oil and gas and that we should, uh, and that we can offset some of that. Um, you know, he's, he's talked about decarbonization using um, carbon sequestration technology. Uh, there's a lot of that in North Dakota already right now, and the summit pipeline uh, coming through Iowa is, is going to end in North Dakota, so he's pretty familiar with, with that um, all. Uh, something interesting is that he did not, he completely shied away from a lot of the social and cultural issues that are really motivating this presidential field right now. He didn't talk about um, LGBTQ issues, uh, gender issues, education, crime. Uh, he did talk about the border a bit, um, but you know, and I, I talked to him for a few minutes um, when he came through the Des Moines area, and he said that uh, he he kind of his his strategy is one of local control. It's kind of one of the reasons that he said he didn't uh, want to bring those things into account. He thinks that um, those issues should be handled best at the local level, at the school board level, at the library board level, um, and that when it comes to the federal government, he wants to be. Um, talking about uh, the economy, cutting regulations, and and uh, and those things. Um, as governor, he has signed some uh, Republican-backed bills that uh, have done these things or that have addressed some of these issues. This year, he signed a bill that um, hit a couple of the um, policy goals of Republicans when it comes to transgender minors and athletes. Um, it was a bill that banned uh, transgender girls and women from competing in sports uh, and also banned gender reassignment uh, or gender affirming care for, for minors. Um, but then he also has vetoed a couple bills in that uh, area this year as well. So he, you know, he said he wanted to moderate his party or his positions and, and wanted to keep things when they should be at local control at local control. So that's kind of his strategy. Uh, he has not, it hasn't seen too much action in the polls so far, but um, be interested to see where that goes. Yeah. Bergam Mintum coming soon. That's <laughs> That's right. I also get a kick out of if you would have gone back six months or so and said one of the gov governors from the Dakotas is going to be in this presidential race, 105 out of 110 people or 105 out of 100 people would have said Christy Noam. Um, and here it is. It's, a, it's her neighbor to the north instead. And if you Vegas said wouldn't have given you odds on that even. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you said a politician from Florida was going to be in the race, uh, you wouldn't know people wouldn't have thought there were going to be three of them. So <laughs> that's true too. We got the uh, Miami, right? The mayor of Miami. Who Miami mayor, yes. Francis Suarez. Yeah. Yeah. Man, the, the, the boat's getting crowded. We're going to need a bigger boat. Um, and, and, and one more before we move on, uh, Jared, you covered a, a candidate this week who um, he, he actually has made some waves in this field. And, and especially as I referred to, um, he's been all over those national cable media interviews, but he is still, Polling like a long shot. Uh, tell us about your experience covering Vivek Ramaswamy this week. So, yeah, I uh, covered him at a carpet store uh, on Wednesday night. Not in, a pizza uh, ranch. City. Not, not a pizza ranch. No, that's the first time uh, I had covered a candidate in a carpet store. So there you go. Um, 
a big through line of his speech um, was American decline. He talked about that in a number of different facets, uh, including like within the first two minutes talking about um, these are all very familiar at this point to anyone covering campaign events in the 2024 cycle. Uh, he talked about wokeism, uh, transgenderism and uh, covidism. He hit all of those. Um, but he also talked repeatedly about being the only millennial candidate in the field. Um, and he said that those in his generation don't know what it means to be an American. And uh, one of the things he blamed that on was the uh, Department of Education, basically, which he said he would eliminate if he were to be elected uh, president. Um, and then uh, after the event ended, you know, it being Iowa, I made sure to ask him about uh, eminent domain and uh, carbon capture pipelines. Uh, and he said he's uh, dead set against uh, using eminent domain for those purposes, uh, but he doesn't blame people in Iowa who respond to incentives created by the federal government. So there was some good uh, kind of jujitsu there to, uh, you know, <laughs> take aim at uh, eminent domain, but also uh, bash the Fed a little bit. He's um, in the Iowa legislature. Yeah. And, and then the, the last thing I made sure to ask him about, which I, I like that he actually took questions because that has not happened at any of the other events I've been to so far this cycle. Um, something we've talked about before on the podcast is this weird place that people are in in this cycle of having to defend another candidate who's in the field anytime a scandal involving them comes up. Uh, and basically what and constantly uh, having to do that. Yes. From Jared. Yeah. Yes. Constantly. And, and what uh, Ramaswamy said was, um, you know, this is an unprecedented sort of thing. So that's why he doesn't think it's that strange to be defending former President Trump. And he even basically kind of said that, you know, it's not really as meaningful of like a win in a primary if you win because like one of the other people was basically like put in jail, more or less. So I thought that was kind of an interesting two part response to him uh, explaining why it is he more than any of the other candidates has gone out and defended Trump. Mm. He doesn't want to beat the Bulls without Michael Jordan in the finals. He wants to. He wants to take down the whole team. Exactly. He wants. He wants. Uh, he wants the best shot. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. All right. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. It's it's always interesting to, to especially at this stage to and look. You know, at, at one point in 2011, Rick Santorum was one of these candidates, right? And and uh, so you never know. That's why we do this. That's why Iowa is where it is. It'll be interesting to see. But this is. As I say that, the 2011 and the 2023 fields are, are decidedly different because of the presence uh, of a, a former president. Go ahead, Caleb. No, I saw, I saw a tweet of a poll from around this time, and would it have been 2015 or maybe it was 2014 that um, that showed Trump, Donald Trump with 1% of support? And Jeb Bush, I think, was leading that poll. So things can change. Yeah, that'd be 15. Yep. Yep. It, was, it wasn't until like mid to late summer that he really took off. I remember writing a story, and I and – I, I still have uh, the quote for obvious reasons you'll hear here uh, etched in my brain. And, and it was a, a, a Republican uh, source who I talked to that the names escapes me who exactly it was, but they essentially said, I mean, there's no way he's ever going to be the nominee. Um, and that was in the summer of 15. So, so yeah, he really didn't take off until, until uh, late summer into the fall. So uh, we'll see if, if a similar future is ahead for Vivek, uh, Doug, or Jared, uh, or I'm sorry, Ryan, who talked to Jared. <laughs> Jared, you stay where you are. We, we need you here and not out on the campaign trail. <laughs> All right, finally this week, uh, we can't sign off before discussing uh, the additional fallout 
from Iowa Senate Democrats leadership change. Last week on the podcast, we talked about Senate Democrats voting out Zach Walls as their leader and voting in Pam Yoakum. This week, we learned there was some collateral damage to that whole ordeal. Former Democratic Senate Majority Leader Mike Gronstall uh, apparently got involved with that leadership shakeup. It wound up costing him his state house lobbying job. Gronstall was a lobbyist for the Iowa State Building and uh, Construction Trades Council. Um, Todd, let me ask you uh, to quote the great Vince Lombardi. What the hell's going on here? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean, we know the facts that that he was let go by his uh, lobbying employer, and uh, the reason cited was that he was involved in this leadership shakeup. Uh, I mean. The thing that we don't know is what he did. How did he entangle himself in this? I mean, I've heard lots of versions from, you know, not a lot to a lot. <laughs> so, I mean, and nothing's, you know, definitive. It's all third hand. But uh, I did I did talk to Zach Walls this week, and I've got a column on Sunday that has some of his comments in there. He, he sort of expands on, uh, you know, this vision that he had that, was kind of pulled out from under him and he also concedes that you know sending out an email on a friday and blindsiding your colleagues by announcing you're going to fire two two longtime staffers was probably not the best way to handle it so you can you can check that out yeah that's super interesting and uh here's here's a little peek behind the curtain and if you, any of you out there ever doubted this to prove that there really is a firewall and a division between uh, the reporters and the and the columnists, the the opinion folks. I, I didn't know about that. I'll, I'll be really interested to see that. Todd, uh, without giving away too much of the farm, um, did he, how much did he say beyond what he said in that original kind of big social media post he, he put out? Did he, did he, did he give any additional color? That well, you know, he, he, yeah, you know, he, like he said in the, in the post, you know, he stands by the decisions he made to sort of change the way the office operates. Uh, but he expanded on that saying, you know, what he thought it was important for the for a minority caucus to sort of get more engaged in constituency service and community outreach and all sorts of things to sort of, you know, spend some one on one time with constituents and start building relationships in parts of the state. And and so, he, he you know, obviously, he doesn't think that's happening now. So that was that was the one main thrust of his of his changes. And I mean, he wanted his own people. He wanted to be able to, you know, have his own chief of staff and, and move uh, Jason Noble, the communications director into the leader's office. And, and so, uh, but yeah, he, you know, he sent out that Friday email and uh, things went south in a, in a hurry. So, yeah. Amazing stuff. And I keep coming back to for a group that, um, you know, where they are politically speaking uh, right now, um, it, it just seems it, it blows my mind that this is what they're having to deal with amongst themselves when uh, their fight politically should be, it seems to me, in a much different spot for a group yeah. of literal super minority in the of, legislative chamber. A lot of, a lot of W's for the, uh, for the Iowa Democratic Party. Goodness gracious. Well, uh, I did, I did, I did, you know, point out that it, you know, to look at the bright side in 1927, the, Republicans held a 49 to one majority. So it can I mean, always be worse. And you know, five years later they had the, they they took the majority. So it's holy I, don't, I have no idea what the backstory is on that, but yeah. 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 That's so the they've they've had a F lot of single digits <laughs> minorities. 
FDR might be the backstory on that one. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's a big part of it. But although I, I I can't remember did well, I can't remember if Hoover actually lost Iowa during that election or whether they he still was managed to carry his home state. So so real quick on this because uh, we got to duck out here. Um, but as we say this, I, I was going through some of those numbers too and looking up this his history, Todd. And the last time the number that was this small, I think it had fallen to thirteen. And I got to go back. I, I I meant to do this. And obviously there's a billion things happening right now. I didn't have time to, at some point I need to go back or maybe someone knows the last time that happened when they were at 13. Um, and I forget what years, it was almost exactly 50 years ago. So mid seventy. Yeah, it was like 71, I think. Yeah. Something like that. They, they, they picked up a bunch of seats. They went from like 13 to like 20 or something, 18 or 20 in the next election. But at the federal level, that was a giant Republican presidential wage yeah. election. But somehow the Democrats added state Senate seats. I was, I was really fascinated by that. I wonder how wonder how that happened. Anyways, um, I digress. Uh, so much going on. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, obviously, all this stuff has tentacles, and we'll be talking about it uh, more in future podcasts. Uh, but for this week, uh, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell your friends and subscribe to us if you're not already. When you wherever you find your podcasts. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can subscribe to that free newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Muscatine Journal, Sea Rapids Gazette, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Mason City Globe Gazette, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Sioux City Journal. Paleo will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or, or musician who should be featured on the show, please send us a sound file. For Tom Barton, Caleb McCullough, Jared McNett, Todd Dorman, and our producer, Stephen Colbert, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thank you all for listening. Along the side of the bow lucky waves we live out in the clouds who stir and spill on the wind whipped moon like a cuticle rune filed away and never by the wind in her swoon for her blue barren womb every kiss was her wish for rain but the rain would go mad become snow with a laugh a long long island sound where the icebergs conspire just like barbs on a wire a long long island a long long island a long long island sound do i bring out the worst in the oceans what are the waves Spell out your name A long, long island
sound and our cats will escape they will go look for their mates a long long island sound where the skies are all scraped by our empire state a long long island a long long island a long long island sound get a daily update from the gazette with our daily news podcast Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.